Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm joined by Dr. Peter Heffernan, psychiatrist who has a special interest in ADHD. I'd like to start by acknowledging the land we're on. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. My name is Amy Fitzpatrick and I'm the Senior Advisor for Disability at Speech Pathology Australia and I am a neurodivergent speech pathologist with a diagnosis of ADHD. So I'm very, very interested to speak with Dr. Heffernan today uh, about his last experience and interest in the field of diagnosing ADHD. So welcome, Dr. Heffernan. Oh, call me Peter, Amy. Okay, thank you, Peter. Would you like to tell me a little bit about yourself and how you've come to be specialising in this field? So um, about 12 years ago, I found myself um, in the consulting room with a patient who'd been struggling with uh, anxiety and depression that had been going on for many years where nothing the GP or the psychologist could do was helping. Uh, And um, I got the shock of my life because um, as I was listening to the history, it became increasingly clear that much to my shock, I was actually in the company of an adult in his late 20s who was giving a textbook description of lifelong attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, going back when I was doing my psychiatry training 30, 35 years ago, we recognised that ADHD existed in children, but there was no notion of ADHD in lived experience in adults whatsoever. So I went back to the textbook and I read through the description of ADHD as it relates to uh, the, the childhood description, and uh, I was absolutely bowled over that I think I'd identified my first case of ADHD lived experience in an adult. Wow. And I... And, uh, I went online, and uh, sure enough, in North America, um, it, it was recognised as mainstream that yes, ADHD in childhood not resolving and continuing into adulthood, and I, uh, I, I felt um, sort of mystified. Really, uh, I, I went home to my wife, who's a child psychologist, and said, "You'll never believe it, but I've come across of ADHD lived experience in an adult." <laughs> uh, and her, you know, she pricked up her ears, and she thought, "Oh, Peter, you're a, you're you're a bit of an outside the square kind of a, kind of a person. Maybe it's a figment of your imagination." And I mean, she let it, she let it go. She's always been very sceptical about ADHD, and has never heard of ADHD in adults. And then two weeks later, there was another case in the consulting room of a person who, again, had had many, many years of experience with anxiety and depression where the psychologist and the medicines from the GP just didn't help. And I returned home and gave the similar story and she was a bit aghast. And then a week later, another case, and three weeks later, another case, four weeks later, another case. 
And um, at that point, my, my my good wife decided um, and spelled out very clearly, Peter, I'm not going to hear about one more case of ADHD in an adult until you've actually got a training uh, for ADHD in adults. So we scanned the uh, the the, the, um, the the world's uh, you know hallowed institutions, and there's good training available in both North America and the United Kingdom, but but the uh, the UCAN training out there in London, you know, popped up as an opportunity to go overseas and um, to, to, get, to get a trip to London and to do the UCAN training. And um, so that really sort of set the stage. And then it was case after case after case after case, all conforming to that textbook description of ADHD in adults that have been there, um, sometimes not so very obviously with really clever people, had done very well with the good scaffolding of uh, a decent family of origin at a good uh, high school, uh, and then the history of uh, young people crashing and burning. So th- there I was, be- becoming quickly um, one of these pioneers here in uh, Australia in this field of ADHD in adults, where none of us had been trained in this field, none of us had been uh, alerted to this issue. And uh, as they say, um, well, it's not quite the rest as being history, but th- there I was, you know, sort of year after year after year with the UCAN training, doing those assessments, after assessments, after assessments, and then some years into it, uh, I suddenly realised as I'd been through umpteen uh, assessment processes for ADHD in adulthood, uh, I looked down at the diagnostic interview for ADHD in adults, which is the kind of gold standard by which we make ADHD appraisals, and I thought, my God, this is me. (laughs) I I got the shock of my life because I'd been working in the field for a number of years, and I I, I put that, um, that, that discovery to my wife, and she nodded her head and said, yes, that, exp- that explains a heck of a lot. <laughs> oh, how interesting. Okay, so you found your people. Well, well I, I sort of, I, I certainly found um, a, a good, um, it made sense to me that, that when I take myself out of my areas of passion, um, my organisational skills uh, I've really got um, something to be desired. I'm very fortunate that I that that my area of passion always has been listening to people uh, and talking with people. Uh, and look, look, we see it in in ADHD every day of the week that when a person is uh, passionate about a particular area of activity, when a person finds an activity that holds a great deal of a sense of meaning and purpose they can focus and concentrate at a very high level. They can organise uh, and they can function at a very high level. When you take them outside of those areas that, 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 that um, are filled with a great deal of sense of meaning and purpose, you know, that, that, that's when the organisation, the distractibility, the difficulty with motivation and follow through, that, 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 that's where those features, those core features of ADHD crop up. And then once I then once I discovered myself was that with, with the ADHD lived experience syndrome myself, and fortunately I'm clever, 
uh, and I'd sort of develop those skills, particularly choosing a, a good romantic partner and choosing good friends and choosing excellent secretaries to support that territory that I, I, I'm just not interested in, that I just do not do well. Um, then there was the discovery, you know, there's an extended member of the family with ADHD lived experience, and there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one. And before I knew it, when I was writing out the the genogram of my extended family, it made such a lot of sense of where the impairments were so very obvious in my grandparents' uh, generation. Uh, it made sense of where the impairments were in the others, in the extended in the extended family network, uh, it's been a gobstopping. Uh, it's been such a such a um, it, it's such a ridiculous experience, really. <laughs> I just wanted to pick up on something you said that has also stuck with me since you mentioned it to me a while ago. Is that uh, masking effect? I guess of um, having a normal to high IQ and how that helps you coast through primary school and to some extent high school and then perhaps the wheels fall off a bit um, and how that might lead to a lot of people not being diagnosed until much later. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that would happen? So I think what's happening there is that if you're lucky and you're clever, you, you can actually d develop those skills that the ADHD coaching um, professions that the speech pathologists and the occupational therapists and the clinical psychologists are very active in facilitating ADHD lived experience people to develop uh, under circumstances where a person is clever that th there's a possibility of being able to self-generate you know to, to cotton on to or, you know, things like, oh, I must write it down, uh, mm. otherwise I won't remember it. I must keep a diary, uh, otherwise uh, I won't be there for that appointment. I must remember to look in the diary, uh, otherwise I won't be there. So clever people can, can certainly um, develop those kinds of strategies that m m many professionals uh, pay good money to to, to help uh, people to develop. Mm. But the other side to it is that when people are really clever, uh, particularly under circumstances where they've got excellent scaffolding, uh, the excellent scaffolding of uh, of a decent school, uh, the excellent scaffolding of a social network, the excellent scaffolding of a um, of a of an of an extended family network. When they've got that effective scaffolding in their childhood and teenage years, uh, that they, they can very often thrive. You know, when they hold meaning uh, in the minds of the teachers that are uh, paying personal attention to that particular student, there's nothing quite like that to activate that sense of meaning and purpose uh, in that young person who's there in the school environment or you know in the. Boy Scouts or the Girl Guides uh, environment, or you know, they're on the footy field when they, when the when the coach pays particular attention to, you know, that 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 person on the footy field. So, when they're in the company of the kind of scaffolding that that activates that sense of meaning and purpose, you know, young people with ADHD and you know older people with ADHD as well can thrive. Uh, it's when that scaffolding, for whatever reason, fades. So in my own experience, 
uh, I, I had very good quality schooling scaffolding. Uh, and then when I moved across to university, you know, and, and I distinctly remember it there in 1974, but where lecturers and tutors, you know, professors couldn't care whether I had a pulse or not. <laughs> I, I just had no sense of meaning being being activated within me, you know, by, by the by, by the academic uh, organisation, and as a result, there I was dragging myself down to student counselling year after year after year, saying, oh, look, I'm obviously the dummy. Oh, obviously, medicine's not for me. Oh, obviously, these exams are too hard. Oh, obviously, I need to go off and do an arts degree. <laughs> uh, and I'd get a pat on the head for a few sessions and I'd get back to it and there I'd be in the next year. And fortunately, when I moved into my psychiatry uh, term as a medical student, I absolutely loved it. Uh, you mm. know, I fell in love with the professor, Professor Richard Ball, who was there at St. V's, St. Vincent's Hospital at the time. I thought he was fantastic and he was so inspiring. I've got a particular knack for concepts. Uh, I, I get really interested and get really enthused in, in pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. uh, and much of medicine's pattern recognition, uh, at that time, such a lot of psychiatry was pattern recognition rather than the rote learning that is required in every other branch of medicine. So I fell in love with psychiatry. Uh, and surprise, surprise, here I am, you know, <laughs> what, um, 45 years down the track, specialising in ADHD. Mm, interesting. Okay, so you mentioned a little bit about speech pathologists being useful in the coaching side of um, people with lived experience of ADHD and you and I have talked about how the speech pathologist brings a really valuable um, role in the team of diagnosing ADHD. There hasn't been much of a carved out role for the speech pathologist, but what do you think we could do in order to help a speech pathologist be part of that team a little bit more? So uh, I um, have been heavily influenced by uh, Professor Russell Barclay, who's been leading the, um, the, the the world in ADHD uh, kids and adults for, for decades now. And he, he puts it very clearly. He says the central auditory verbal processing um, case, uh, where, where there's that glitch when it comes to central auditory verbal processing, at least as I understand it, his view is that that is a version of ADHD lived experience. So every time a speech pathologist comes across uh, the, the case where they're about to write in their report, you know, here is a case that includes uh, central auditory verbal processing issues, but they must pull out the, the, the other um, diagnostic instruments, the DIVA, the Diagnostic uh, Interview for ADHD in Adults, is very comprehensive and it's got limitations, but it's actually very good. And when the speech pathologist is identifying you know, sort of tick after tick after tick uh, on the DIVA, m m maybe, yes, most welcome to put that central auditory verbal processing uh, issue there in the report, but also recognising it's also probably... Uh, reasonable to conceptualise it uh, as ADHD lived experience as well. And one of the reasons I know this, again, from personal experience, is that uh, I am a person with that central 
auditory verbal processing um, uh, problem syndrome mm. until my ADHD was addressed by my ADHD specialist. Uh, and all of that kind of territory has dramatically improved. I mean, previously, th th there's no way in the world I'd have been able to, um, to to participate in this kind of conversation. It would have been very, very fraught and very challenging. But these days, that capacity to, uh, to, to engage with the flow, you know, the complexities, the neurological complexities of, uh, of, a, of a, a conversation. So certainly... Speech pathologists really must have a good grasp of the uh, of what the that the the ADHD lived experience syndrome what what it looks like what the pattern is there, and I've got no doubt that speech pathologists are very familiar with the syndrome very familiar with the pattern, but they're not using the the ADHD language. Yeah, that's actually a a really good point because. Speech pathologists are very familiar with um, a lot of the conditions that have a high comorbidity rate with ADHD, like developmental language disorder, dyslexia, autism. You know, those are the conditions that we're extremely comfortable with diagnosing um, and the prevalence rates of those comorbidities are so high, but we're not often involved in the diagnosis of ADHD or think to to pursue that often. So I think that's an excellent point um, that we could be quite valuable in our understanding of auditory processing and comprehension. Um, so I think we could ponder that further. Uh, so thank you for that insight. It's an important one. And the, 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 the speech pathology um, uh, um, discipline isn't alone in that uh, domain. I mean, it's it's also there. For example, um, the, the neuropsychologists, and I've got a lot of time you know, for the for the expertise of the neuropsychologists. That they'll make a diagnosis of uh, of executive dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So, so they're seeing the ADHD. At least that they're seeing that syndrome that that I know of as ADHD that responds brilliantly to the range of of, of strategies, including medication. They're mm -hmm. seeing it. Uh, that they're identifying the syndrome, but but what they're not doing is they're not following through with uh, the referrals across uh, to a psychiatrist who's or, or a developmental paediatrician who has the expertise, particularly those expertise in the psychopharmacology. So I'm very comfortable with the expertise of speech pathologists and neuropsychologists and clinical psychologists and occupational therapists, the various disciplines with their various protocols, their various, you know, the repertoire of, uh, of, um, of uh, management of treatment strategies. But I've got no doubt those kinds of strategies work so much better when you've got that effective medication in place. Mm. Absolutely. And I mean, that's quite consistent with the new uh, Australian-based, evidence-based clinical practice guidelines that have recently been released as well. Um, well, have... me and my colleagues had a certain level of influence <laughs> in, in crafting those in crafting those guidelines. So yeah, the, the time and effort and energy we put into it has obviously paid off. Yes, that's right. I will put a link to those guidelines um, in the show notes, um, but it's always good to drop that um, information in there. 
the the other the other piece of information that's also there on the on the website of the Australian ADHD Professionals Association is the most comprehensive literature review uh, of the scientific evidence uh, that that's been published in recent years, but by the World Federation of ADHD. Uh, there's a, a working group consensus statement that's uh, there on the ADPAR website, uh, and it, it uh, goes through in meticulous detail uh, the, the science behind the scientific basis of the the the, 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 um, the, the references to all of the papers, hundreds of them, uh, that uh, support assessment, diagnosis, and management recommendations that are endorsed by the the World Federation of ADHD and uh, the local ADPAR organisation here in Australia is um, well it's a part of the world federation and um, a, a great document also for every clinician to, um, to to be very familiar with particularly when it comes to the, those encounters with the um, you know with colleagues who say oh ADHD I don't believe in that well here's the scientific literature that says um, that th- th- this is a syndrome that must be taken very seriously Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. So I just want to go back to what you said about medication and then how that links to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. How does taking medication for a condition that doesn't cure that condition um, mean that you're not eligible for funding? Does that make sense to you? (laughs) A leading question, perhaps. So so the problem we've got with the disability insurance scheme, the fundamental problem we have uh, is that we do not have uh, adequate lived experience representation when it comes to those fundamental processes that, that, that are operating there within the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Mm-hmm. What we really need is the lived experience experts in the field of disability to be providing that all-important process of education to the public servants who are charged with the with the task of administering administering uh, the the the, um, the the NDIS scheme. We, we need those with lived experience of ADHD. We we need those with lived experience of cerebral palsy. We need lived experience of those with spina bifida. We need those with lived experience of autism. Uh, spectrum. We need those um, w- with lived experience as a as as an expert um, as a, as an expert reference group to help those public servants comprehend what, what what's actually needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that really makes sense. And in Minister Shorten's recent press club announcements, he has committed to a little bit more education for staff. So I hope that that does eventuate <laughs> well i'm looking forward to the day when amy fitzpatrick <laughs> is actually one of those in that consultative group but being paid good money and there's certainly good money out there for uh, for consultants for federal and state governments to actually ensure that that the funding is effectively targeted and what's so so incredibly challenging for 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 the clinician that I am is that there are so many out there who don't know they are ADHD lived experience, or if they do know they are, they just do not have access to the services that 
transform a, a person's capacity to function and become a, a, a very effectively functioning taxpayer. Uh, so the NDIS, for example, and Medicare and the PBS, that they're all collectively sitting in state uh, public health systems as well, you know, pub, say public mental health systems, are all sitting on their hands saying, oh, oh no, 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 we, we, we can't deal with that. Um, and this this NDIS notion that, um, oh, well, if there's a particular raft of measures that can transform a person's capacity so that they're no longer disabled by it, mm. well, we can't fund that. Mm. It doesn't make any sense at all to me. It's really interesting that you say that because it just reminds me of uh, when you spoke to me once about your estimates of people with diagnosed or undiagnosed ADHD in the justice system, and that was eye-opening for me. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, look, it's, a, it's an absolute tragedy without a shadow of a doubt. What we know from the studies that have, done, that have been done in the last 10 years, there are a lot of studies that have been done in Europe. Uh, we've got some good studies that have come out of Sydney that the National Institute of um, the, the NHMRC uh, uh, have got a, a, a unit that uh, developed a particular interest in ADHD in adults a few years ago, and, and we're looking at uh, rates of something in the order of you know forty to fifty percent uh, of those who are in prison uh, as as, as long term prisoners uh, are, are ADHD, not oh. diagnosed. And in the correction system, of course, never treated. Uh, there, there's a there, there's a prohibition upon ADHD actually being treated in the Department of Justice in the criminal justice system. It's mm. an absolute scandal, a tragedy, because we know from the studies that are being done in uh, in Europe uh, over the last five years, ten years now, when you put even a basic level of treatment for ADHD in place for those in the prison system who are identified as ADHD, you actually halve the recidivism rate when those prisoners are released. When they're on a very basic ADHD treatment, it reduces by half the number of people who come back as a result of enacting further criminal activity. Wow. The other aspect to it, there was a very interesting study that was done, uh, again, and this was in Scandinavia a few years ago. So we know that roughly one in 20 of the population are ADHD. In any any Friday night in the in the police stations of, I, can't, I think it was Sweden, is where they did this study. When you actually, uh, when you actually uh, assess young people under the age of 25 uh, who are turning up in a police, to a police station uh, on a Friday night, one in four of them are previously undiagnosed ADHD. There's an absolutely florid amount uh, of uh, ADHD being enacted because of the recklessness and the impulsivity of some of our uh, ADHD uh, population that lands them into serious hot water, into uh, into uh, police stations, into jail. Is that because of rejection sensitivity, dysphoria, a diagnosis that often goes hand in hand with ADHD and that difficulty in processing emotions? 
I think the emotional regulation is a very significant component that l- l- leads to, you know, the breaking out of a fight that lands to jail. The vulnerability to self-medicating with alcohol and the other recreational drugs that also leads to that disinhibiting effect that sort of escalates the prospect of functioning in a reckless and impulsive way. But also there is a substantial cohort of those with lived experience who do the thinking after they've done the action. So they act first and think later and time and time again what what we see when we get uh, effective ADHD management in place is uh, uh, those with ADHD lived experience, they can step back from the situation, they can actually think about the situation and then respond in a way that's much more creative, uh, much more uh, ingenious, much more effective uh, rather than being provoked reacting and then later regretting uh, what, what, what they've what, what they've enacted before they've actually had a chance to think it through. Interesting. Okay. So we know that there's a Senate inquiry into services for ADHD lived experience at the moment. What is your ask for the Senate inquiry? So look, look you're speaking with a psychiatrist here, but I think it, all, <laughs> it applies to all learned societies. So I'm a very firm believer in federal funding, state funding, uh, to really ramp up in a in a dramatic way, uh, funding for education of clinicians, education of psychiatrists, so that they are actually competent in assessing for diagnosing and treating ADHD. What we're stuck with at the moment is a tiny fragment uh, of the consultant psychiatrist, you know, population of around three and a half thousand in Australia and New Zealand. A very small proportion have actually completed the training that I've been rolling out over the last couple of years. At last count, we've got 160 who have completed the training that I that, that I offer, all privately funded by those psychiatrists themselves. In the ADHD, um, in the um, in the, AD, the the College of Psychiatry ADHD committee, we are very firmly committed and have been since since we started um, th- this worthy venture about three years ago uh, of seeing what we can do to really ramp up the education for our registrars, our trainees in psychiatry. We've been passionate about, and I know that our ADHD committee is passionate about ensuring that that, that public mental health is actually providing excellent quality services for those with ADHD lived experience. So there there really needs to be that funding uh, at every level uh, for consultant psychiatrists to have that training to develop those, to have that experience and expertise. And it equally applies to every learned society, uh, whether that's speech pathologists, occupational therapists, clinical psychologists, neuropsychologists. We've got that whole raft of disciplines that have traditionally been you know, represented within the multidisciplinary mental health psychological medicine team. All of our learned societies must be uh, provided funding to ramp up uh, the training in this in this field because so many uh, of those with ADHD lived experience need to be there in the clinician's consulting room. Many of them these days can't afford it and many who can afford it 
run the risk of seeing a clinician who's not familiar with you know, the principles of assessment, diagnosis, let alone implementing the management strategies. Well, that's right. And we know that seeing a professional who does not value or understand your diagnosis can be very harmful um, and set you back a number of years. So we don't want that. Oh, look, time and time again, Amy, I see patients who have been seeing psychiatrists for you know, a decade, for 20 years, for mm-hmm. 30 years, uh, where, where the ADHD has been missed year after year, decade after decade, uh, and then they come to see uh, me. And the reason that things have not dramatically improved with the treatment for the anxiety or the depression or the bipolar disorder or the post-traumatic stress disorder or you know the the um, I- any number of me- mental health conditions that have been diagnosed by others is because that vitally important piece of the jigsaw puzzle has never been recognized and never addressed and such a the level of suffering that's there in our community because ADHD isn't being diagnosed, isn't being addressed, the amount of suffering. And of course, the next generation, uh, the, the reality of it is that if you've, got, if you've got parents who are out of action as a result of their ADHD, they are not going to be functioning as the most effective parents that they possibly can be in providing that excellent quality scaffolding, you know, the psychological, the emotional scaffolding for the next generation. And time and time again, you know, I, I hear the story of the child who's been diagnosed with ADHD where the parent is never assessed. Mm. Uh, we're all, all of our learned societies have a long way to go and governments funding uh, education and training, governments funding services you know, for provision of assessment, diagnosis and management at good levels of uh, quality is absolutely vital. The Australian ADHD Professionals Association estimates that undiagnosed, untreated ADHD in Australia is costing the economy $20 billion each year. And that particular report that was done by Access Economics uh, that that was um, organised by the ADPAR organisation, that's on the ADPAR website, $20 billion per year is the is the conservative cost, let alone the suffering uh, that, that that is coming from undiagnosed, uh, untreated ADHD. Yeah, that's a, a huge cost and a lot less than what's spent on NDIS per year. <laughs> well, the reality of it is uh, over the last couple of years, you know, quite rightly, that there's been a lot of uh, distress and a lot of uh, media attention to the lobsters that aren't going to China these days. Uh, and the estimate was, you know, $5 billion a year is the cost to the Australian economy, plastered across uh, television screens and newspapers and and, uh, and computer screens on a weekly basis for quite some time. ADHD is costing the Australian economy conservatively four times that amount in dollar terms, let alone the suffering uh, of those 
with ADHD lived experience that are there in prisons, that are there in drug and alcohol rehabilitation programs, they're in the poker machine venues uh, addicted to their gambling, they're in domestic violence um, services either as victims of domestic violence or perpetrators of domestic violence, they're in the existing um, you know, mental health systems, undiagnosed and untreated. There's such a scope, there is such a potential to save such a lot of people that, that the kind of suffering that's part and parcel of the lived experience of ADHD when it's undiagnosed and untreated. Uh, and there's there, there, are, there are billions of dollars to be saved as well. Wow, that's a really powerful message. Thank you. It's sounds like a very impactful report. I'll uh, include that in the show notes as well. Sounds like you have. Yes, your... I, I think I think that report. I've I've done. We've done our best to um, to to to, um, to to make friends of Bill Shorten <laughs> with, with that with that report, saying Bill, we've got a twenty billion dollar, we've got a twenty billion dollar um, you know pot pot of gold here. All we need is funding to get ADHD addressed and the Australian taxpayer will have $20 billion extra uh, to uh, put into um, in, into the budget to uh, make a difference in all of those other areas where you know taxpayers' money needs to go. That's right. Okay, well, this is the last question um, because otherwise I might hold you hostage for the rest of the day. <laughs> um Speaking around um, teasing out other diagnoses, so if somebody has a lived experience of childhood trauma or um, there's other diagnoses or mental health conditions you need to look at, how do you make a diagnosis of ADHD in that situation? So, look, it's a really interesting question, that one. And, look, fundamentally clinical disciplines, whether it's speech pathology or psychiatry or, or other branches of medicine, um, diagnosis is essentially pattern recognition. Um, how do I know that that piece of cloth that, that, that surrounds your torso is either a dress or a blouse? Well, I've never seen it before, but I've seen millions of them uh, over the last you know, 67 years. And I can say, oh, I think that's not uh, a, tea cl- you know, a tea towel. Uh, I, I think that's not, uh, you know, I think that's not a cap. Uh, I think that's a blouse or, or, or the upper proportions of a dress. So we're really fundamentally about um, pattern recognition. Uh, and in psychiatry, we, we, we refer to the patterns as syndromes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, medic, the medical profession has been working on pattern recognition, has been working on diagnosis for about, give, give or take, sort of three, 4,000 years. It was there in the ancient Ayurvedic medicine traditions of ancient India now, they may not have conceptualised the patterns that, that, that they were seeing in the way that I'd be conceptualising those patterns, but, but, but doctors have been putting in, clinicians have been putting in work literally over thousands of years in refining their capacities to, to, to recognise patterns. Uh, and medicine is really a training in pattern recognition first and foremost. Psychiatry I- is about de- developing skills in pattern recognition. 
And psychiatrists are actually very good when they've got the necessary training. I'm sure speech pathologists also uh, are, are very good when it comes to pattern recognitions in the, in the categories, in the fields of, you know, that speech pathologists are experts in. So we're pretty good at picking the pattern of, uh, of ADHD. Uh, I think some of us are excellent at it. Uh, but I think we're pretty good at picking the pattern uh, of complex childhood trauma. Mm. I think we're pretty good at picking the pattern of, you know, the other, you know, 380 mm -hmm. uh, psychiatric diagnoses. And very commonly, we're, we're dealing with, uh, you know, with lived experience where we can identify multiple patterns. And then a part of the training that comes out of psychiatry is uh, identifying a hierarchy. Uh, how do we go about tackling, you know, that constellation of syndromes? And I think part of the, well, I know for a fact, part of the art of psychiatry, part of the training in psychiatry is actually identifying what the hierarchy ought to be. So if I see a patient with the pattern with the syndrome of ADHD, and they're lying on the floor, not breathing, <laughs> uh, that, that's the pattern of either a respiratory or a cardiac arrest. And by, by virtue of that training all those years ago, I've got a pretty good idea that the hierarchy is treat the cardiac arrest first before getting on with paying attention to the ADHD. I mean, that's a very glaring kind of obvious example, but it, it, it certainly, um, it, I, I hope it sort of clarifies the the, the issue. Fortunately, in the field of psychiatry, there, there are really only four modalities. One of those modalities in terms of management of treatment is mentoring, and speech pathologists do actually a lot of mentoring. You can call it speech therapy, but I call it mentoring. The second one is mindfulness training, which is that kind of, kind of capacity to develop skills in in steadying oneself, and I think they that that's a universal right across the mental health board. The next one on the list is modifying the environment, mm -hmm. building relationships that are constructive, creative, and avoiding the uh, avoiding the troublemakers like the plague. But modifying one's social, modifying one's physical environment, and the fourth is medicines. And fortunately, the mentoring, the mindfulness the modifying of environment, that, that these are the approaches that occupational therapists, speech pathologists, clinical psychologists are already implementing every day of the week, and they are all applicable uh, to you know, a, a wide constellation of uh, ADHD, wide, sorry, a wide con constellation of the psychiatric syndromes. So it may well be that speech pathologists, that occupational therapists, that ADHD coaches in particular, but also clinical psychologists with their various schools. Of, I should also mention the art therapists. So I've got a colleague who would be very cranky if I didn't mention the art therapy discipline as well, <laughs> uh, that they are all working already with those with lived experience of ADHD maybe without knowing it, but the techniques are very useful. Even if they're, the clinician isn't aware that they're working with someone with ADHD lived experience, 
that these various mentoring-based relationship, professional relationship-based strategies are very useful for complex post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety disorders or schizophrenia or a a whole range of the the psychiatric syndromes. I think our clinicians are already dealing with cases of ADHD lived experience, whether they know it or not, Mm. and that they've already developed the skills in the mentoring domain to actually tailor make those approaches to the individual, perhaps without actually knowing that ADHD is one of the facets of what's uh, what, what's driving the the derailment that, that 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 the individual patient is needing help with, and then you add in strategically the right medicines, hopefully from a clinician who has the necessary training and experience, the necessary supervision. And you can sit back and literally watch the patient soak up you know, the, the value of the mentoring, the clinical psychology, the speech pathology, the occupational therapy, that, that they soak it up like a sponge once that those key executive dysfunctions are addressed with the medication strategies. Mm, that paints a really nice picture. Thank you. Okay, I will um, stop myself from asking any more questions now and let you go and have a a break but I'd like to thank you very much for a very pleasant conversation as always and I look forward to working with you on our further advocacy projects to um, change the world one diagnosis at a time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, as I flagged uh, previously um, my my good wife said uh, she was never going to talk with me about another ADHD case (laughs) until I'd done that training, which I did all those years ago. When I got back from that training and ever since, she still refuses to talk to me about ADHD in any way, shape or form. So it's always a delight to have a colleague who's interested in exploring the territory. Otherwise, um, life would be very boring. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm very happy to oblige. All right, I'll talk to you next time and thanks for joining us for another Speak Out Conversation. Tune in next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.